This week's Major Spoilers podcast goes out to Jason DeLuna, Kevin Flyth, and Trevor... Hey, give me a break. I'm not Matthew. Hey, guys, this show goes out to you. Major Spoilers theme song! The Major Spoilers podcast is on the air. Pod- on, on the air. The Major Spoilers podcast is on the air. On the air. Pod, pod, podcast. I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Stephen. If you're listening to the Major Spoilers podcast, 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 The Major Spoilers podcast is on the air. Welcome to issue 387 of the Major Spoilers Podcast. So glad you could join us this week. Uh, This week, we're going to sit down and have a chat with Chris Robertson. Many of you may know him from iZombie or Starborn from Boom Studios. You may also know him from his time on Superman and Cinderella, uh, the uh, Fables Are Forever series, and of course, the ongoing Star Trek Legion of Superheroes uh, miniseries, which wraps up, and his creator-owned work, Memorial. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for uh, taking the time and being part of the show. I'm happy to be here. So I, I have a question for you. I mean, uh, why did you, I mean, we've been talking about the Clockwork Storybook uh, Writing Challenge uh, mm-hmm. all last month. It went on. It looked like it was a big success with everybody taking part, but you didn't uh, take part this year. I'm a slacker. Uh, why is that? It's funny. I had too much writing to do to take part in the writing challenge. <laughs> too much writing um, to do? <laughs> Yeah, but so I, I had a, a huge raft of, of scripts that had to get done in that month. Um, but a, a great portion of any comic script is not actually the writing part. Mm-hmm. It's the, the, the figuring it out and thinking and the kind of blocking out scenes and doing outlines. And so, um, you know, in any given week, I'm actually only sitting and typing things that either the artist or the reader will see for maybe two, two and a half days. Mm-hmm. And the other couple of days, the other two, three days are spent making uh, illegible notes to myself or, <laughs> or you know, sketching things out or going back and checking reference or searching on Google image search for image reference and things like that. So, and um, so ex- I just, I didn't kind of explain comment. that thought, that process. I mean, you, you spend, you said a, a week working on a script from, does it take you roughly a week from start to finish? I can do it faster, but psychologically, I find that it works best um, if I can begin and end a project um, between Monday and Friday. So the the most I've ever done is I want to say something like four scripts in two weeks or three scripts in two weeks. Um, But that leaves little time to stop and think. Um, It's almost all just the, the manual act of typing out panel descriptions and dialogue and things like that. And I find that the work is better if I have a little bit of time to kind of ruminate and digest a bit first. So yeah, five days is, is fairly typical. Um, and that's five days, uh, of spending like the morning doing interviews or, uh, writing solicitation copy right. or doing research. And then part of the day actively working on the script and then the rest of the day, you know, watching cartoons with my kid or, you know, <laughs> talking to my wife and things like that. Well, you are writing quite a number of books right now. You've got Memorial and the Star Trek Legion of Superheroes crossover from IDW. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're still doing iZombie or, um, yeah, iZombie yep. with Vertigo. And uh, are you doing something with Boom Studios still or is that one done? Uh, I, there are three or four more issues, I think four more issues yet to be published of Elric the Balance Lost, mm-hmm. which is a 12-issue miniseries. Wow. And um, in addition to iZombie, I'm also writing one of the arcs of Ferrist for mm-hmm. Vertigo, which mm-hmm. is the spinoff of Fables. Right. Um, and a bunch of other stuff that hasn't been announced and I can't talk about yet. <laughs> Well, let's go back to Fables for just a moment, because um, I guess you got into DC. Uh, were you writing comic books before you started with uh, Cinderella, or was that your first first book? No, I was doing novels before I, I, I started working with the Fable stuff. Right. And so uh, then, then you got into the Fable stuff, and I guess the big question is, what do the rest of the Clockwork Storybook men have on Bill Willingham? 
that, uh, uh, well, that see, gets you guys you into it. <laughs> it's if just funny. Share, if, if we share the dirt, everybody would have it. It's um, just kind of funny because Matt uh, Sturgis got in doing stuff through uh, Fables and um, uh, the Jack of Fables series. And then you come in with Cinderella, Fables are forever, and now you're doing some stuff with Ferris. It's just kind of, it's just kind of interesting. And uh, Bill Williams did uh, backups and Angel. Oh, that's when, right. Uh, Willingham was writing that. That's right. Uh, um, I think the simple answer is, is that Willingham is is just a minch. Like Willingham is like one of the greatest people on the planet, and he's always uh, since Kamiko days been tireless in his attempts to try to get friends of his that are writers whose work he likes uh, work in comics. If that sentence made sense. No, no that, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. No, no, that, that makes perfect sense because it seems like, especially with what we do at Major Spoilers, and I've told the story a million times about how Matthew and Brian and I are all friends from, you know, 20 years ago when we were in college. And when the site started up, it's like, I want to gather those people that I know and that I trust yeah. and believe in to move the project forward. So that's, you know, that's that Bill Willingham. What a stand up guy. Yep. Of course, it means, you know, um, all of us are under the gun to not screw up uh, whenever he, he uh, you know, holds the door open for us. Well, the Fables are Forever, the Cinderella Fables are Forever was a great uh, look at the uh, the spy work that uh, Cindy does for the rest of the Fables. But then it was like right after that, or maybe it was at the same time that was announced, uh, you got, uh, I don't know, dumped onto or put onto uh, the Superman. Uh, it was a bit later. I think... Um, Let's see if I can remember the timeline correctly. I want to say that Cinderella was uh, 2009. Mm, okay. And I want to say it was like October of 2010 that I was offered the Superman oh, game. Okay. So I was actually finishing up the second Cinderella miniseries by the time that Superman came around. And how was that? I mean, uh, there was a... Already there were people a little concerned about the arc that was going on, and then you're asked to come in and pick up the work from somebody else and finish out that finish out that story. That had to be a little bit stressful because you're working with one of the biggest characters in the uh, comic universe. Yeah, I didn't find it stressful really at all. Um, and and really, um, it was an op. I, Superman was uh, probably my first fictional love. Like my, my cats are freaking out in the other room. <laughs> um, you know, there's photos of me, I think, from the age of five or six onwards, wearing uh, Superman Halloween costumes at Christmas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, on my honeymoon, there's pictures of me in a, in a Superman shirt. Um, <laughs> all, all I heard when they offered me the job was that I got to write Superman yeah. uh, for eight months. And, uh, you know, I knew that I was I was picking up a storyline that hadn't been terribly well received and that uh, I had some concerns with personally. Um, but ultimately, you know, I got to write Superman for eight months and really got to do whatever I wanted um, within the framework of making sense of the storyline that had already been started. Well, I think you ended it. I mean, you didn't uh, – did you pick up off of a plot? I mean, was it kind of plotted out? Did Straczynski give you a plot outline for the rest of those those eight uh, issues or were you able to just go in and say, this doesn't work, let's change this and, and just make it your own? Well, I never had any, any contact with, with JMS either directly or indirectly. Okay. Um, but the editors did pass to me um, a kind of page-long, like a single-page overview of – it was really the last, I guess, nine or 10 issues. Mm -hmm. So included the last two that he did. And I had the impression that it was the level of detail that would be given to editorial so that they could draft solicitation copy and right. figure out okay. what's on covers. Mm -hmm. um, and so when it was given to me, the editor said, well, you know, here's what JMS had in mind. The covers for issues, I think 707 and 708 have already been done. So you have, you know, these guest stars that have already been uh, mapped out, I have to work out a way to include them. But the, beyond that, I could pretty much do whatever I wanted uh, okay. with, with the understanding that um, Superman would still visit each of the requisite uh, towns and cities that had been mapped out in this kind of strange contest that was done. Mm -hmm. um, strange in that there was this big push um, through the, you know, kind of, 
uh, wider media that Superman was going to walk across America and they were holding this contest. And so people wrote in letters saying why their particular small town should be graced with a visit by Superman. Right. And then as far as I know, I don't think anybody besides the editors and me ever knew who won um, because they sent me the winning letters. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it was ever announced anywhere who these people were um, oh. that had written these things in. So I'm not, I'm not sure what happened there. So going back into that. But as I say, I got to write Superman for eight months, and that was pretty fun. But going back into what you were talking about with research, is especially when you've got uh, a fictional city uh, like Metropolis, uh, you can pretty much set a fight or an exchange anywhere. But if you've got uh, Superman walking through Des Moines, Iowa, and he's going to specific locations, that's got to have a lot of extra research uh, thrown in to, to do that stuff. Yes and no. Uh, it's, in fact, easier to do the research uh, for real locations. Um, so that, you know, I wanted to reference um, the metropolis i guess baseball team or football team mm-hmm. and that was just in a, in a brief conversation between superman and another character it was really complicated because there, there's not been a lot of consistency over the years and so researching either real you know fictional locations in in the dcu uh you know before they restart everything right. uh, or references to the world in which those characters uh, uh have their adventures can be complicated because you know, there's inconsistencies over the years. And so there's multiple oh, yeah. different fictional, you know, sports teams. Anyway, uh, if you're setting it in a real location, like, you know, Ogden, Utah, or whatever the case may be, just go on Google Street View, uh, look around for a bit, um, go to the um, uh, the Tourist Info Bureau website for that town, see if there's any sites of local interest. Um, and it basically it usually involved a few hours on Google street view, taking uh, screen caps of, of the street view mm-hmm. um, that I could then send to the artist because I, you know, the, the art for just about every one of my issues with the exception of uh, the last one and a half or so that were done by Jamal Eigel, the rest of them were done by artists living in um, Brazil oh. and they really don't have a clear understanding of what, you know, any given location in the United States looks like. Sure. Um, so the, the, the settings were all, um, intensely researched, but very quickly, um, so that anybody living in that town would say, Oh, I know that bridge or I know that building and everybody in the rest of the world would never notice. So I can understand that when you, when you're doing the research though, in, in fictional cities, uh, set in the DCU, you know, for years we uh, have gone back and forth onto where exactly Metropolis is or where Smallville is supposed to be located. And there are some sources online, but does DC have an official source, an internal source book that says, hey, uh, Metropolis is in Maryland and Smallville is located in this part of Kansas? Or, or do, they get, uh, do they get a little vague in themselves? Because at one point, you know, Smallville was like in Pennsylvania, and it wasn't until after the 1978 Superman that they set it in Kansas. And then ever since then, everybody's moving it around to just north of Wichita, way out in western Kansas by Dodge City, you know, over by Topeka. It it just kind of jumps all over the place. Well, to answer your first question, I think there was an official source book at one point, Mm -hmm. and his name Mm -hmm. was E. Nelson Bridwell. Uh, But he's not there anymore. Um, so, uh, you know, I think throughout the Bronze Age, there was a fair amount of consistency about those kinds of things. And since then, um, you know, you won't even find, you know, I, I don't know what the day-to-day is like now. Um, but there is no real uh, internal arbiter of continuity, hmm. uh, at least in terms of the past stuff. Uh, the editors kind of keep a watch on what the characters are doing and again, I'm speaking for I don't know what happens after the the relaunch. Sure. Um, sure. But at least in my brief experience that one year, um, the editors are kind of riding herd on making sure that um, as much as possible there's not uh, conflicts between what appears in, in one DC comic in any given month and another. But references to past stories, um, if anything, you know – I was at least in that situation 
something of the authority because whenever a question was raised about a reference that I made, I would just cite chapter and verse if it was this particular issue of action or this issue of world's finest or just send them scans of particular panels. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just gotten, it's gotten too big, um, uh, too complicated and, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to badmouth the others. It, it's a different kind of, uh, editorial philosophy than under, you know, Julia Schwartz and, sure, and guys sure. like E. Nelson Bridwell. Oh yeah. I um, mean, everybody's going to have a different approach to how, how they like to do things. And it may just be that, you know, actual placement isn't, isn't something to nitpick on at this time, but yeah. more, Hey, this is set in star city. We know the star city is located in this general area. Go, you know, that kind of yep. stuff. And and I think that works uh, to a big extent, but I know we had a, a big discussion about a year or so ago over where Smallville was located. And we were actually trying to pinpoint all the different locations over time that that city has moved. And it was very interesting kind of research to do, but it, uh, at times it can be maddening when you're trying to figure out, you know, well, what Smallville are they talking about? Well, in the earliest um, uh, appearances of Superman action comics, if I'm remembering correctly, and Mark Wade could jump on me if I'm wrong, um, I'm pretty sure that you can read Metropolis as being Cleveland, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, for yeah. at least the last, the first half dozen or so appearances, right? Um, it, it certainly reads that way, and it's only mm-hmm. later that it becomes this Eastern Seaboard, yeah, kind of city. So you got to work with Superman. That had to be like a dream come true. It was pretty awesome. How was it working with Stan Lee? That was pretty awesome too. Um, that was another one where I, I accepted the job without thinking. Um, you know, uh, I, uh, Matt Gagnon, who was then managing, managing editor, I guess, and who's now editor in chief at Boom mm-hmm. Studios mm-hmm. just contacted me and said, you know, we're doing this line of, of books with, uh, Stan Lee and his people, you know, do you want to write one? And I just said, yes. And, uh, it was only later that I started, um, having second thoughts, um, and thinking that maybe this would be the kind of thing where, uh, some big name, lends their brand to a project they really don't have anything to do with. Mm -hmm. Uh, In which case, you know, I, as the person actually, you know, doing the work would have to pretend in interviews like the big name was an integral part of the process and, and, and and was reviewing stuff when in fact they had nothing to do with it. And I've done that a couple of times. I I wasn't (laughs) in a hurry to do it again. Right. Um, But no, I got, I, I got to uh, sit down with uh, Mark Wade and Paul Cornell uh, to have breakfast with Stan in San Diego one year. Um, uh, you know, Mark Wade would forward me voicemails from Stan that he, uh, that he would leave after he'd read the issues or, or email me notes he had. And by and large, the notes were all like, it's a winner. You know, uh, um, I like it. Cool. So, um, you know, Stan Lee knew my name, could pronounce it correctly, and <laughs> liked my work. So there was really no downside to that. Well, that's got to be a lot of fun. And that was, you know, that was a fun series to read. Uh, it lasted 12 issues. I think that was just the right amount of time uh, for that book. And, uh, you know, it, it certainly gave a boom, a, a lot of attention with, with Stan Lee being attached. Sure. It was fun to do. <laughs> and so let's talk about some of your, well, before, we, I guess, before we talk about some of the original works, uh, how did you get involved with the current IDW Star Trek Legion of Superheroes crossover? Uh, the short answer is they asked me. Um, the The longer answer is it was a weird fluke. Um, I think it was not until I turned in the last script that I finally asked Chris Ryle, um, uh, who's the one who offered me the job and who edited the book, mm-hmm. uh, before I finally asked him, like, how, why did you give me this? Because, you know, it seems unlikely that he would know um, without really having met me before that I'm a ridiculously avid fan of both <laughs> his properties. Uh-huh. Um, and he said, no, that he just, you know, he'd read some of my work uh, and liked it and uh, uh, thought I'd be a good fit. But what he did not know was that, um, you know, in the 1980s, I was a member of the, uh, the Starfleet fan club. And in the 90s, I was a member of the Klingon Language Institute. 
Um, the late 80s, I was a contributor to a uh, Legion of Superheroes Amateur Press Association. Oh, cool. Um, and my party trick for years was that I could rattle off the real name and home planets of every member of the Legion of Superheroes. Oh, I wish Matthew was here because you two could just have a nerd out on that. I, I am a giant nerd on both of those things. Um, <laughs> and so that was a project I didn't have to do any research on whatsoever. Like uh, those that just I, did, I tapped into the 30 plus years of research that I already started, you know, when I was eight. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, w- I was curious just because I knew you had a relationship with D.C. And if because you already had a relationship with D.C., that may have been one of the reasons why they said, hey, here's somebody who knows the Legion, who already writes for D.C., and should should not have any problems as the two companies I think it, work on these properties. I think it probably made it easier for IDW to get DC to sign off on me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, it was not a contributing factor in IDW deciding to come to me with the project. Do you so ever get to the just, Do you ever get to the point that someone from DC sat you down and said, "Okay, you got to be real careful with doing this, this, and this." with oh, no. a property at, at another place or do the no, companies no. pretty much just say, Hey, sure. No problem. This sounds like fun. It was, it was all handled through IDW and basically, um, they dealt with DC with the Legion in the same way that they deal with CBS, uh, for Star Trek, which is that they, the, those two companies were the licensors mm-hmm. who were, uh, mm-hmm. um, basically loaning them the rights to do the book. And so, you know, there was this kind of round-robin editorial process for approvals, uh, both on the, the, the proposal level and all the way through the final issues, um, where IDW would have to be happy with it. And then everything goes to the licensors to approve. I see. But I think that the only – I don't think we ever got any significant note back on D.C., and the only thing that CBS ever said, I think, was a couple of times they pointed out that I had uh, Spock uh, speak uh, with a contraction. Contractions, yeah, yeah. And that that was not allowed. <laughs> Though I'm pretty sure that a few times in the original series, <laughs> Spock did utter a contraction or two. <laughs> I'm sure he did. Uh, yeah. You know, when that's when that series came out first, I was like oh, this should be very interesting. And then I saw your name was attached, and I was like, okay, well, this already moves it up to the next level for me. And then, you know, the first couple of issues were going at a pretty good pace, and then we hit this most recent issue, uh, I guess where the big reveal and the turn happens, uh, that is just, you blew me out of the water with issue number five. Well, thank you. And if people haven't heard my review of that, go back a couple of of episodes where I talk about uh, this particular uh, issue, and the fact that uh, the the big bad has been uh, capturing or hijacking or encountering time travelers from all eras. And boom, we get a double-page spread that has all of these time travel devices, which was just brilliant. I mean, that was just in that, uh, to see a, you know, a, a DeLorean and the a time tunnel and the uh, hot tub time machine all in there. It's just you could spend five minutes just trying to search that double page spread, trying to find those devices. A lot of that I, I have to give credit to the Moyes for because um, because this was a, the script. The script was going to be approved. You know, my actual words with the panel descriptions right. was being sent to CBS and to DC. So I had to be fairly coy with um, the panel descriptions in terms of you know. Uh, infringement right uh, and so the only thing that i speci- only things i specifically referenced were a host of of uh, dc time travel devices mm-hmm. a host of star trek both from all era time travel devices mm-hmm. and a couple of oblique references to uh, uh phone boxes and, and and phone booths and things like that uh police boxes and phone booths um, and, and hope to be on hope that the boys would be able to read between the lines and, and see what I was going for. <laughs> and they, they definitely did. So I think something close to half of those references, uh, are the Moyes and the other half are mine. And it's also got to be real fun working with the Moyes on this project because they are big, or at least from my, uh, favorite version of the Legion, uh, they are the go-to artists, at least for me. Uh, for the sure. Legion. I mean, they, they they were definitely very uh, uh, committed to the book and and very passionate about what they were doing. And I think I, I think it showed on the page. 
and so how do you connect with your with your artists when you're on a book? Uh, is it all through email? Is it fax? Are you doing – how does the communication go? Because you're in Texas, and mm-hmm. I don't know where the Moys are, but they must be close around the area because they always attend the uh, Planet Comic Con in Kansas City every year. By and large, it's almost always uh, um, through the body of the script and then um, – you know, amended by emails. I think mm. rarely will I ever talk to anybody on the phone. And that's largely because I'm afraid to phone. Um, <laughs> Sean McMahon has called me once with a question and it kind of freaked me out. Um, it was a very simple question, um, but I'm just not used to talking to people on the phone. Um, so, you know, the other thing is that on a number of the projects I've worked on, um, English is not the artist's first language oh, or right. they don't yeah. live in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been lucky in that I almost always know who the artist is before I write the script. Um, and so I can kind of tailor what I'm asking them to do to um, what I think they would be uh, good at doing or would enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I always include my phone number and email in the script and say, if you know, there's any questions, let me know if you have a better idea. And invariably, there'll be some sort of back and forth. But as I say, it's almost always by email. Okay. The other big great moment in, in this issue was the reveal of who was captured, how uh, the big bad was able to warp time and, and basically take control of the galaxy. That was that was a really fun moment, too. And, and you really built that up very nicely. Uh, to get well, to that to the get to that Q reveal, and that's something that I guess um, I'm sure some people probably saw it coming. But the fact that traditionally, when we talk Star Trek, we're not we're not thinking blending, even though they all consist in the same continuity. We're not thinking of blending a character from Next Generation into the uh, into the original universe, and so that was kind of a, a nice surprise. I felt it was a tiny bit of a cheat. Um... Because, you know, I'd considered using Trelane, but I didn't think it would work. I didn't mm-hmm. think that he, he didn't have um, the kind of power level necessary to do what I wanted the character to do. So I went ahead and went with Q. Um, but I tossed in, um, this This is a little bit uh, off the beam, but I, I tossed <laughs> in a little bit of justification in that we see... This character, I think I should, you said the name quickly, but yeah, yeah. Who would it, we, we see Q quickly um, in the last issue, and he's wearing um, uh, Trelane's outfit from the Squire of Gothos. Mm. And it's this kind of oblique reference to Peter David's novels um, mm-hmm. that established that Trelane was an immature Q. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know how many people would, would get that. I, but it does I did not great. pick up on that myself. It amuses me. Well, you, you you haven't seen the, you haven't seen him dressed as Trillane yet. But if you were and were uh, a giant fanatic for the uh, mid '90s uh, uh, Star Trek novels of Pocket, you might make the connection that that's the reference I'm going for. Very cool. Uh, one of the variant covers is by it looks like Mike Allred. Yep. Uh, of that issue, and that's got to be fun too because you're working with him on iZombie, mm-hmm. uh, still going on from uh, from D- uh, Vertigo. Um, you know, I've not read, and I know maybe many of our listeners haven't read iZombie. Can you give us a, a breakdown of what that book is about? Uh, sure. Uh, the very, very high-level overview is that it's a story of Gwen, um, who's a girl who lives in the modern day in the town of Eugene, Oregon, mm-hmm. and dies, uh, which is sad. And then she comes back from the dead as a zombie, which is a surprise, and um, quickly discovers that... Um, she can pass for human and everything's fine so long as she eats a human brain once a month. Hmm. Uh, but she doesn't want to hurt anybody. And so she gets a job as a grave digger at a uh, eco-friendly, no preservatives cemetery. Yeah. And hmm. once a month digs up the freshest body and eats its brain. And then everything's fine. Except that for a week following consuming the brain, um, she digests the memories and thoughts and personality of the dead person and shares her head with that person's uh, uh, memories and thoughts and personality and feels compelled to um, address any unfinished business that they left behind. Oh, cool. And um, hilarity ensues. It's Yeah, that's a different take on the zombie genre. Have you gotten a, a lot of feedback, pro or con, from, from uh, zombie fans? 
Um, you know, I don't know that I've got a large enough sample set to say. Um, I have heard from zombie fans that really enjoy it. I've heard from zombie fans that despise it um, because it's not uh, the post-apocalyptic shambling zombie thing. Um, but I think that the, the most justifiable thing and defensible thing I can say is that um, it is liked equally by people that love zombies uh, and people that despise them. Now, I zombie is not set in the same universe as I vampire, is it? No, no, it's okay. it's uh, it's separate own little universe. Does that cause any confusion among uh, uh, readers thinking that they see the same title? I zombie, I vampire. Um, not that I know of, but so long as they okay. buy both, it won't bother me. <laughs> the other the other project that you're currently uh, working on is uh, from IDW as well, and that's Memorial. It's only been out for what two issues, three issues now. I think the third one came out a week ago, two weeks ago, maybe. Give us a breakdown of that. I, I have them sitting here. I have not had a chance to read them yet. I'm so far sure. behind on um, everything. Um, the setup for the first issue is that um, this is in modern-day Portland, Oregon, so I mm-hmm. move at least, I think, you know, 90 miles away. <laughs> um, and this is because all the artists I work with on my creator-owned books seem to live in Oregon. So uh, it's easier for them to do reference. Um, but in modern day Portland, Oregon, uh, a woman shows up at a hospital with um, no memory. Uh, mm-hmm. She can speak, but she doesn't know who she is or where she came from. And the only clue to her identity is a necklace she's wearing that's engraved with the letter M. So she comes to be known as M, E-M, by the, the hospital staff. Oh, okay. Um, okay. A year later, our story picks up. And she's managed to build something like a life for herself. She has a job. She has an apartment. She has friends. But she's always searching for clues to who she really is and what she was doing before and how she came to be there that day. Uh, and so she wanders around the city looking for things that might be familiar. And um, one day she wanders past an alley that she's walked by a hundred times um, and for the first time notices um, a door to a, what appears to be some sort of strange antique shop at the end of the alley. And the reader quickly discovers that this is the kind of strange antique curiosity shop where one might buy uh, a gremlin or a cursed monkey's paw. Um, And when you take it home and decide that you want to return the thing, when you go back, the store is no longer there. It's mysteriously vanished. Um, But what N finds is when she walks back out of the store for the first time, that the store has already moved and it's somewhere else. And she's been thrust into a very big, strange, supernatural conflict. And uh, the only asset she has that can help her navigate uh, the strange world she finds herself in uh, is a talking cat. And uh, there's an evil puppet, and there's some uh, living shadows, and uh, people turn into statues, and uh, blind kung fu librarians, and... um, (laughs) Sold! Yeah. Sold. Stuff like that. <laughs> evil puppets. Aren't there always evil puppets? This one is particularly evil. <laughs> what uh, What else do you have coming up or, or that you can talk about? Or are there secret things that you'd have to kill us all if, if we knew about them? I'll have to wound you at least. I think that's <laughs> the only ones I can currently talk about. I Zombie, uh, the Ferrist. Oh, we haven't talked oh. really about Ferrist uh, too much. Okay. Uh, I know that that is the the spinoff featuring uh, most of the uh, or many of the female characters from Fables. Um, mm-hmm. Are you working on the first arc, the second arc, or or where are you working at in in that series? Got to keep going. Uh, I'm working on what I believe is scheduled to be the fourth arc. Wow, you guys work so far in it, advance here. It'll be a while. Yeah. So the first issue comes out. I want to say next month. Next next I think month. Yeah. They, something like that. Um, cause the solicitation for the third issue just appeared online, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the conceit is, um, as masterminded by Mr. Willingham, that Ferrist, no definite article, just Ferrist, um, showcases, um, fables that can, uh, justifiably called the fairest in the land. Um, and so each of them will be a six issue storyline each of the arcs would be a six-issue storyline focusing on one fairest fable. Oh, okay. Um, and mine um, will naturally uh, focus on Cinderella, and mm-hmm. it, it's actually a story that was initiated as the third Cinderella miniseries. 
um, soon after the conclusion of the second one. And uh, it was being developed in parallel with Therist. And so the decision was made to roll it in as one of the arcs of Therist. So that's what I've got a lot of breathing room to do on the script. So um, the first one's been turned in. Sean McManus is going to be back doing the art. Um, and it's more, you know, globe-trotting, super spy adventure shenanigans with Cinderella. Excellent. So you're talking fourth arc. Are these three issue arcs or these six issue arcs? Cause that's like, these are, these are, these are six. So, wow. my, so you're looking like two years that. ahead. Yep. Wow. Do, do they, do you normally work that far ahead or are you nope. working just a nope. couple of months ahead? How far ahead are you working on, on books? Uh, Memorial, for example. Well, it depends on the book. It depends on the artist. Um, and, and the publisher. So, um, Typically, I'll be uh, maybe two or three scripts ahead of what's currently on the stands. Mm-hmm. Um, it can get as tight as one issue ahead, um, depending uh, if there's been any kind of pickup in the schedule. Right. I hate to leave artists waiting. Um, so, you know, I guess the ninth issue of Elric hasn't come out yet, and I just turned in the tenth issue script. Okay. I, I've turned in. Let's see, issue 25 of iZombie and issue 23 is not out yet. So I'm usually a good two or three months ahead. And that's a pretty good buffer though, right? Well, you'd think so, but you know, with the the production time involved and the time it takes these poor poor suckers to actually draw these things, it's not that much of a buffer usually. Mm. Um, uh, I can usually manage to stay a few days to a week or two ahead of the artist so that when they finish, uh, this, they finish drawing an issue, they will have had the next issue script waiting for them for hopefully a couple of days at least. That's good. At least it won't run into, and I mean, is there added pressure now that DC is trying to get everybody to, uh, hit the monthly deadlines and not, um, not have a book come out late? Well, you know, it's hard to say because uh, I don't know how much those things impinge on uh, Vertigo's day-to-day business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, you know, I've, I've been ahead of schedule on iZombie basically since it started. So um, we've never been in serious jeopardy of missing a, a ship date. So okay. I don't know. I guess I could test it and see how far we can push it. <laughs> Probably don't want to test it too much, though. I get paid when I turn the script in, so I'd much oh, well, just... there you go. There's there's the incentive right there. Uh, you had mentioned at the beginning, before you got into comic books, you were uh, prose. And, of course, Clockwork Storybook had uh, a great chance for you and the rest of the uh, Clockwork uh, TikTok men to uh, get things out. But then after Clockwork Storybook was over, you launched Monkey Brain Books. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, do you still have that going Yes. And and what do you focus on with that? I mean, because you're looking at um, publishing strictly uh, physical books, hardbound books. Um, well, primarily trade paperbacks. We, we okay. did a few hardcovers, but those were kind of the exceptions. And most of them have been um, offset printing uh, trade paperbacks. So that is not print on demand, but okay. traditional okay print and bound sure. and the focus of monkey brain um since the beginning has basically just been things i want to have on the shelf and so at the beginning that largely manifested as um as nonfiction about genre topics our, mm-hmm. our first mm-hmm. title was jess nevins's uh companion to the first leave extraordinary gentleman mm. um and then we did we reprinted a michael Moorcock history of epic fantasy and uh Peter Coogan's analysis on the superhero genre and several mm-hmm. other lead companions and Jess Nevins's fantastic Victoriana encyclopedia. But uh, over time we, we gradually branched into doing uh, uh, single author short story collections or short novellas. Um, and we're, we've got some plans in the work now that I can't talk about yet. Uh, but <laughs> right, do those summer, have to involve a certain writing challenge that just wrapped up? No. No? Okay. Because I know that uh, uh, Mark uh, Finn, who we're going to, I think, have on the show next week, uh, mm-hmm. after he was done with, with his, his story, the Condorks uh, story, 
he was talking about he's going to actually go through the process of now getting this out there and, and publishing. He's going through his his rewrites, everything right now. So I didn't know if if a lot of those guys come to you to, to publish or if they, they go to other, other people and places. No, we, we largely slowed down on uh, the fiction publishing. Um, the last few that we did, it, publishing novels is a tough business these days. I'm sure. So um, I'm leaving that to other people to do. Um, but um, no, it's different stuff. Okay. How, how does digital impact book publishing? I mean, we've got Kindle and we've got the uh, iBooks. And then, of course, we've got comics in a digital format for, through companies like Comixology and Graphically and, and, and those. How does that impact what, what you do either with Monkey Brain or in how your, your comic books are distributed? Or just what are your thoughts on digital in general? Um, well, I, I, I'll have a more specific answer this summer. Um, okay. uh, in general though, just as, as creator and reader, um, I, th- I think it's, I think it's fantastic. Um, I'm all for it. Um, f- for many, many reasons. Um, the, both the personal and the more general, I mean, the more general reasons that I have for thinking that, uh, specifically something like the way that comiXology runs their thing. Um, is that I've heard, over the course of the last couple of years, I've heard from any number of readers um, who wanted to find, wanted to read comics of mine, but either couldn't find them in their local comic shop or they didn't have a local comic shop mm-hmm. or they lived overseas and would have to wait three or four months and spend five or six times the cover price to get an American comic. And the nice thing about uh, the digital delivery is that those people uh, can buy it um, on their phone or their their tablet or their computer the same moment that it appears on the shelf in comic shops. Right. Um, and I think it really does tend to serve a different audience. I think that the people that are going to go to a comic shop and buy uh, the book off the racks is not the same people that's going to go and spend, in many cases, the same price to buy it digitally. Um, but you're paying that price digitally for the convenience of it. For the, because you couldn't get it otherwise. And I know from my own, uh, uh, in my own experience, um, on those occasions when I can't make it to my local comic shop, which is one of my favorite places to go, mm-hmm. um, I can just go on my iPad and buy the thing. Um, and more and more I find that my single issue purchasing has shifted to digital, and I tend to go to my local comic shop every week to pick up trades or, you know, reprints right. or back issues and things like that. Um, because I've been going to the comic shop every Wednesday for something like 32, 33 years. And um, those things stack up. Um, yeah, they do. And, you know, I've been, I've been divesting uh, short boxes of comics for about a year and a half now. Um, and I still seem to have a billion of them left. You know, yeah. just getting rid of the ones that I'm never going to read this again. Um, 60, 75, 80 short boxes of comics. And I've still got that many or more that I'm hanging on to. So the idea of just being able to read them digitally in this much more kind of uh, disposable way and then buy a collection of them a few months later that I could put on the shelf is mm-hmm. very attractive. You know, I, to be honest, I've been doing that kind of, I haven't been giving away comics and I've got somewhere, I don't know, the last count that I looked, it's uh, like 15,000 books or something like that. And it's like five rows of, of 10 long boxes. And I found that instead of going back into the long box to pull out an issue, I'm going online and seeing, is that digital issue uh, available or digital yeah. version of that available? Because I just don't want to dig through the boxes. And then, it's a and, and, yeah, it is. And in some cases, um, like with the Hellboy stuff, uh, I've been choosing to go with those big bound library editions of the books and forego the individual issues because they are just that that big nice comic to, to sit on the shelf. So I, I wonder if there's a lot of of readers that are doing that. Well, I know. I mean, there's certainly been definitely forever. Well, at least the last twenty plus years, but seemingly increasingly in the last decade or so, uh, the the waiting for the trade contingent, mm-hmm. particularly mm-hmm. with independent comics. You know, people will say. You know, that book sounds really promising. I've heard great things about it. Um, I look forward to picking up the trade, even right. if the first right. issue has just come out. 
So it's mm-hmm. not that they can't get on board. It's that they're preferring to wait for the collection. Um, so, I mean, certainly those people, it's not going to affect them one way or the other, whether right. it's available digitally. Or- well, but I mean, doesn't that affect, doesn't the, uh, let's say iZombie, let's say everybody's waiting for the next big trade of that and they're not mm-hmm. buying the single issues. Then doesn't that impact whether Vertigo decides to say, hey, we're going to continue this series or not continue this series? So in a sense, it's it's actually kind of important that people are still buying either the, the single issues, either the physical copies or the digital copies. Uh, so that the issues can actually make it to the trade uh, state or the stage of of uh, release. Well, yes and no. I mean, I used to be a very firm believer in that, and um, I used to think personally that it was it was my job as as an advocate for the books I liked um, to vote with my dollars, and mm-hmm. so I would buy things in every edition that was available. So I would buy the individual issues, then I'd buy the trade, then I'd buy the hardcover. And um, I, I just think that economies of scale are such that people should just buy what they like in the format they like it in. Um, and the publisher should hopefully be canny enough to see, you know, that maybe we're not selling as much of this version, but we're selling more of this other version. Um, yeah, I would hate to put the onus of that on the reader. You know, as long as they're buying it at all, right. uh, I think I'm happy. Okay. Do you ever think we'll get to that point where uh, the physical single issues will go away and we're either just getting it in a digital format or a physical trade? Um, I I think that that is not too far in the future. And I definitely Mm -hmm. think, I don't know how quickly, um, you know, like DC and Marvel superheroics will get there. But I think that more and more we'll start seeing the kind of smaller independent books going that route. Because when you get to the point where, you know, the vast majority of non-DC and Marvel superhero titles, and that includes uh, Vertigo and Icon in in what I'm about to say, Mm -hmm. they don't sell more than a few thousand copies um, on average. With the exception of a few outliers, the vast majority of them are selling in just four digits, you know, and um, and mid four digits if they're lucky. and when you're when you're only selling that many, you're not really even recouping the cost of printing the thing. Um, but you know, if you were able to do it digitally and then do the trade, you could cut out the the cost of printing and, and binding and shipping and warehousing. Um, and the local comic shop would still make their money off of selling the trade. The right. readers would still get to to read it on you know an incremental basis serialized over the course of months by reading it digitally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that more books would probably um, be more stable and more viable if they didn't have to always be chasing um, uh, the same dollar twice by selling both individual issues and trades. Because in many ways, it seems like the people that would buy uh, the one are the same people that would buy the other. And so you're kind of cannibalizing sales back and forth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I and I guess though it depends on on the fan base because I know with one particular title that I'm just in love with, I'll buy it no matter what format it's in. In fact, I'll buy oh, it the sure. same issue, you know, multiple times just so I can say, hey, support this and ongoing. But I know that there are a lot of people that don't discover the title until after they've heard me go on and on about it and finally pick it up in the trade. And so they only will buy those trade collections. Uh, as opposed to just going out and, and searching the single issues. And some of it is sure. because it's, as you said, as a low run, uh, stores may not be able to get them in or, or may not even order them uh, unless somebody requests it through a, through a shipping list. So, um, you know, I, I really think personally that the digital is is more accessible to more people than maybe the uh, the print single issue in a, in a comic book store is. Well, and it has the added benefit of uh, a digital copy available through something like Comixology's Comics app um, is always available. Mm-hmm. So it's not that it requires a store to, to buy it and stock it and then find shelf space for it and, you know, until it's gone and then restock it if it sells out. Um, available digital means that it's available you know, from this point onwards until the publisher removes it or the digital supplier goes out of business. Right. Um, so it can continue to generate, you know, interest in sales. And if you have, 
for example, like preview pages or even an entire preview issue available for free, mm-hmm. uh, that's going to be able to reach many more people than uh, just someone thumbing through an issue on a rack would do. Excellent. All right, Chris. Well, I know it's late and I said I wouldn't keep you very long, so I want to thank you for being a part of the podcast this week. Well, thanks very much for inviting me. And uh, everybody head out there and, and buy a lot of his books. We've got the sixth issue of uh, Star Trek Legion of Superheroes coming out. Memorial issue three and four. Or three is out. Four is on the way. And, and of course, I, Zombie, and many, many other books uh, that Chris is doing. Go out there and support creators. Thanks so much, Chris. I appreciate it. And that wraps it up for this issue of the Major Spoilers Podcast. Thank you for downloading and listening. Next week on the show, we're going to be taking a look at Wapsie Square, a webcomic series uh, from uh, Paul Taylor. Why? Because we know that you love comics, and we do too, and we'll talk with you real soon. If you have any questions, comments, topic ideas for future shows, or would like to sponsor a show, send an email to podcast at majorspoilers.com. Visit Majorspoilers at majorspoilers.com, and be sure to check out the Major Spoilers Forum. You can also follow Major Spoilers on Twitter at twitter.com slash majorspoilers and on MySpace at myspace.com slash majorspoilers. Fat Dick's revision of Superman. I could save a few bucks and stand around and read through the covers of the comics on the stand. But although every other page would be backwards, I suppose, I could still read the evens and the odds. Well, I don't know. Guess I haven't thought this all the way through. Plus, as soon as the comic book store guy knew, they kicked my butt out on the corner. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Way. If I was hulking green or gray, I could just bust through that brick wall, take their comic books away. But then the little meat would deal with all the tanks and bombs and guns. Have you ever tried to read a series with all that going on? Guess I need to rethink this plan. How would I back and board my comics with such huge hands? Guess I already told ya. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a major spoiler, what a major spoiler. If I'm star raving rich like a man of iron, I might not be surprised to find that I might actually have the heart cold to follow an entire storyline. Would I really even need to read upon all those escapades? I mean, who needs such distractions when your sister's such a babe? But the downside is such a beast. Being shot up in a fine bee in the Middle East with a King Santo and soldier. What a major spoiler, what a major spoiler, yeah, 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 what a major spoiler, whoa, 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 what a major spoiler. Major Spoilers is copyright 2012.